0: Hello, good evening everyone. Hey, welcome to the street night. So good to um, spend a little bit of time together this evening. My name is Matt, if we haven't met before. Um, I've been a part of this community for about seven or so years. I moved here um, to, to go to Vic for uni. I've kind of been at the street since then. Um, and yeah, just a, it's a privilege to be able to, yeah, just to hang out and and speak to you guys tonight. Hey, um, I do have something to confess about myself, which is that I sometimes look at like some of the different aspects that my friends have going on in their lives and I'm like, I'd like to at least try that, you know. I'd like to at least experience something that this person has going on in their life. I think about one friend who has, like, been pretty close with since I first moved to, um, to Wellington. When we first first both came to Wellington, we were both skinny, right? Like, like I mean, as you can tell, nothing's changed for me. But for this friend, um, he's like had the stage of like, oh, I hit up the gym and, you know, all this stuff like protein powder, chicken breast, everything, you know. And I sometimes think like, man, it would be nice to have like, some sort of like physical something going on you know like like I'm yet to be described as a unit or like physically remarkable in any way um and sometimes I think like man that would be nice to know what it is like like over summer at the beach or whatever um and then like reality sinks in and I think about what would I actually have to input to see that in my life like am I going to get up every morning and go to the gym no I am not okay like You've got to think about, like, is it worth it to see that outcome? I'm just not that sort of person. Or um, I invited myself to go stay at a friend's place in Christchurch. She said, yeah, yeah, come on down. Except hopefully I'm finished the kitchen by then. You know, those friends like, yeah, we're doing up a house. Um, we're, you know, we're doing a lot of work ourselves. We're going to save money. I said, you know, what would save money? Just being content with the kitchen that you have, you know? <laughs> Which I find, I think Paul talked about contentment, you know? It's a biblical thing. Um, just, you know, so that's what... Uh, I had to think about, I said to Melissa, yo, we could, like, you know, like, we could do our kitchen sort of thing, like, make the house look kind of nice. And then we realized, like, I'm practically useless, you know, like. Um, and so, you know, we don't really have the perseverance or the energy to do up our own kitchen. Um, previously, our, our sink was leaking. Um, and I, like, just tightened, like, one of the things under the sink. I'm like, yo, this is like, you know, I've made it as a, as a home <laughs> home liver now. So that was exciting. But But... You all know there's many situations in life where, like, sometimes we can be tempted to think, man, it would be nice to see this outcome. It would be nice to see this thing come to pass in my life. But when we start to think about what it's actually going to take to get there or the different inputs that are required to see an output, sometimes we're like, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes we're like, oh, it would be nice. That would be like a, it's more of a nice to have than a must have, that sort of thing. And then there's other situations in life where we're like, actually, that's something that would be really cool. That's something that would be really awesome to see. I'm going to prioritise the different inputs that are required. I'm going to prioritise the different things that I need to do to come to see that past, to come to make that happen. And we're finishing off our, our, our Blood, Sweat and Tears series tonight, looking at the book of First Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians were a church that, um, like went. Through some pretty niggly stuff. They had like pretty significant persecution going on, um, but they stayed strong as robust followers of Jesus. And it's out of this sort of situation that Paul write, wrote to them, giving them encouragement and further instruction. And in today's passage, we kind of come to the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And Paul gives a bunch of short, sharp closing points, the majority of which, particularly the ones we'll focus on today. Um, have to do with us as a community or a Christian community? How do we interact with each other as a unit of believers? And so I'm actually only going to really focus on the first, like, six verses. So um, apologies if you're a big 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 28 fan. Um, We're probably going to look mostly at the first six verses tonight. And, And there's a tension that I want to kind of work through, hopefully somewhat gently. But I think the tension that for us today is that That Christian community, as it's designed to be, as it's set out in the New Testament, is a a place of incredible love and deep relationship and and mutual support and space to grow and mature and collective worship and all these cool things. But I think if we're actually going to realize the New Testament's vision for community, for church, for um, what it calls ecclesia, it's going to take from us a level of input, a level of, of responsibility, of ownership, of denial of self a level of care for and giving to others. I think it's going to take a level of giving of ourselves, a level that's higher than what many of us coming from our European individualistic culture might initially be comfortable with. If we're going to see that as an output, we have to consider what actually are the inputs that we're putting into church to see this happen. So we're going to look at the passage. The passage is 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 28. It goes like this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Father, help me to, to share this message tonight. Would it be your words and not mine, Lord? Would you be yeah, just speaking to each of our hearts, Lord, of, of what's the next thing that you have in store for us as we walk out of this place tonight? We ask you these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So, cool. so this passage starts off with Paul telling the, the, the body of believers, all of us, to acknowledge your leaders. And I think this was a, a well-timed thing that they got a volunteer to uh, speak tonight. I have no, uh, uh, I'm not on the payroll here or anything like that. I'm just one of you guys. And the verse goes like this, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. So Paul commands us to acknowledge our leaders in in spiritual community, whether that's pastors, whether that's elders, whether that's life group leaders or leaders of different ministries that you are involved in. Hold these guys in the highest regard and love because of their work when he says to acknowledge our leaders, the word acknowledge kind of carries this like just to see or to know. And so really it's more like um, to have an awareness of actually who are these people, like who actually are our leaders and what is going on for them in their lives. And have an appreciation of the work that they do. Paul says to hold them in the highest regard and love. Remembering that in all situations, love covers a multitude of sins, whether they're smaller, genuine sins, or sometimes with our leaders, we can have our perceived sins. But love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean that they are infallible. It means that our love for them supersedes moments where we feel like different decisions could have been made, or something else could have been said, or uh, you just had a different vision of how something should go. But our love supersedes that. I want to make one important note, and then I'm going to move on from this. There are some sins of Christian leadership that need to be brought to the light, so, so please don't interpret this verse or what I'm saying as we sweep things under the rug. But as a general rule, in normal circumstances, we should hold leaders in the highest regard and love and give them the grace and support and buy-in rather than some of the other things we can sometimes be tempted to give to our leaders. But look at how Paul pivots from discussing specifically the leaders of the community to the community itself. Paul says, uh, live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. And then the key verse for me in this passage is, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Always strive to do what is good for each other And for everyone else, a couple of things that I want us to see in this verse. The word strive means to really actively pursue or like aggressively chase after something. The the word that we have translated as strive here um, is most commonly translated in the New Testament as persecution, right? So this word strive is like a really aggressive chasing after, a real aggressive pursuit of something. It says to strive to do what is good for each other, is to proactively pursue the good of each other. Uh, And and here it's talking about where it says each other, um, it it means the whole faith community and everyone else means the wider world. So it says always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So it's talking about both. I think it would be fascinating to think through all the implications for Christians of what does it mean to strive to do what is good for the entire world, for everyone else. we could be here for quite a while talking about that. But I want to focus on each other to strive to do what is good for the faith community. And, and, and in ver- verse 14, it has the word, which trans- translated warn, is the exact same Greek verb as as admonish in verse 12. Um, so the exact same thing that Paul is telling us to acknowledge our leaders for, he's also telling us to do ourselves. And I think this captures his, his overall point in pivoting from discussing leaders to discussing the whole community. It's not just the leaders who have the responsibility to build and cultivate the community. It's all of our responsibility. And I think this passage carries a little bit of a warning for those of us who are, are naturally inclined to kind of sit back and be what I might call a, consu- a community consumer. Um, someone who doesn't really feed back in, but is waiting for their kind of needs to be, to be served, to be fulfilled. Uh, the way the church is designed is that that's actually not very sustainable. Uh, because the body of the church or, or the community, it's, it's not a program, it's not a building, it's not an institution, it's just the coming together, the assembly of all the people. And to put it somewhat crudely and in and, and, and mathematical terms, I think the church in, in many senses is not a whole lot more than the sum of the inputs we collectively bring as spirit-filled followers of Jesus. We know that when we gather, Jesus is in our mix. But in in a lot of ways, church isn't a whole lot more than the sum of the inputs we collectively bring as spirit-filled followers of Jesus. And so in this sense, we all carry equal responsibility. You know, to strive for, to actively pursue, and to chase after the good of each other stands in opposition to our world's approach, which is to strive to do what is good for myself. But if we want to realize Scripture's vision of church, it, it starts with us. Resisting the temptation to sit back watching, resisting the temptation to just hope something good happens, resisting the temptation to be on the lookout for what we can get out of it or for which of our needs or wants church can fulfill. But rather, each of us individually and proactively starting to live out the sort of community and relationships that we ourselves want to experience. You know, we're called to strive to do what is good for each other. And the reality is, in many ways, that the community that you be is the community that you'll see. So what does this look like? Paul gives us four specific applications, which are just earlier on in the passage. What I want us to notice about this is that, is that this isn't like sign up for another program or give a whole bunch more time or like, you know, like join this institution sort of thing. Notice how all of these things are around how we relate to others they around independently, each of us taking responsibility that others experience Christian community as it's designed to be. The first one is this. Is number one is warn those who are idle and disruptive. And warn those who are idle and disruptive. This one takes a lot of wisdom and grace, I think, um, I'm tempted not to tell anyone just to go sending it with like warning everyone who's idle and disruptive because I think there's a a lot of uh, counterproductive stuff that can go on in those um, settings. But the one thing I want to draw out is that the word warn means that, I think there's an earlier slide just with maybe like 14 through to maybe 17 on it or slightly earlier. Sorry, my slides are not very clear where we're going. Um, Where it says warn those who are idle and disruptive, um, the word warn means like bring to mind or call to mind. So it means more like bring something to someone's mind, but it doesn't mean that we have to take responsibility for the actions of everyone else in the church, right? Like we're kind of tasked with, with giving a reminder or asking, is this something important to you? But we don't take on ourselves what everyone else does. I think a cool starting point for this in terms of warning those who are idle and disruptive is, is practicing how we receive encouragement um, or correction from others. So not getting defensive or bitter, but weighing up what someone has said with wisdom. Point number two was encourage the disheartened. Jerome talked a little bit about this last week. And so he said, remember that we are children of the light, encouraging each other with the hope that we have in Jesus. And I think on a practical level, encouraging the disheartened for many of us might actually mean just slowing down and having time for people and being present and listening well. Number three is help the weak. This is really just providing practical love to those who aren't in a position to help themselves. Jesus said, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I think this one needs to be a core strength of, of Christian community. You know, we each have a personal responsibility to love others, to help the weak, but we can do much more collectively than we can do independently. And then the final one is be patient with everyone. There's a, a call to, to love and pursue the good of each other. It kind of becomes immediately more challenge, challenging when you uh, come up against people that you don't like, gel with or mesh with um, or that sort of thing. But there's the call to be patient with everyone is a great starting point for when we think about, like, there's going to be a mix of people in the church, right? And are we going to be best friends with everyone? Like, probably not, but we can w- practice being patient with everyone. And then the next verse in the passage is, is is 16, 17, and 18. I think these are critical to understanding actually how do we achieve this vision of church. And this is the last thing that we'll look at in any depth. It says, verse 16, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. And you immediately think, man, this is a really high bar. Like, Paul is being ambitious for what I am actually going to see in my life here. Like, when it says rejoice always, like, some of us are like, I would love a moment to rejoice in. But Paul's saying, don't worry about a moment, just all the time. Rejoice always. And I think, okay, what is it actually that links these things together? What is it? Why has Paul, like, chucked these ideas together? And I think these things are all, they're all present choices. They're all spiritual practices that we can choose to do now, that ground us in our future reality. What I mean is that the the actions or the, the, the rationale or the justification for these spiritual practices, the rationale for these things isn't actually what's going on right in my life at the moment, but it's what God has done and what is to come in our lives. These are spiritual rhythms of rejoicing, prayer, and giving that orientate us around what is to come rather than what is passing by. The sort of things that root us in the perspective of Paul when he says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to each of us. So if we look at all three really quickly, rejoicing. Jesus said to those facing persecution, similar to to what the Thessalonians was facing, he said, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. Elsewhere he said, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. To rejoice always is is to look beyond the current circumstance that many of us find ourselves in to the joy that will ultimately supersede these things for followers of Jesus. Uh, On prayer, I love the writer Philip Yancey's take on prayer. He says that prayer shifts us from our narrow perspective and aligns ourselves with God's eternal perspective. He says, prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's point of view. And finally, of, of, of giving thanks. You know, giving thanks always in all circumstances doesn't mean, I think, that we have to be thankful for God for everything that is going on in our lives because I think there's some... Um, stuff that goes on in our lives that God doesn't like immediately orchestrate. I don't think God is directly responsible for much of the bad things that come to us in our lives because it's not consistent with who God is. But I think being thankful in all circumstances, meaning being thankful for what is good in our lives and being thankful that what is good for, for those of us who believe in Christ will one day become the full picture, become the full reality because of the work Christ has done on the cross to defeat sin and death. And I also think that giving thanks leads us to humility because it reminds us that we are dependent and not in control. And so God's will for us is is to choose to rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances because it causes us to look beyond, to see the bigger picture. It grounds us in the truth of what is to come. And we're pretty much finished. My, my, my encouragement for us is we think through community. It's, I think, the only way we can really enable, the only way we're going to see the vision of what God has for our community is to lean on the promises of God. Because I think when we have this eternal perspective, we can really combat many of the barriers that prevent us from seeing this New Testament community. What are some of the promises of God? Here's three of my favorites. Christ says, Take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus said, My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And Paul wrote to Timothy, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. You know, being grounded in these, in these promises and these eternal truths enables us to live our kingdom community now. It removes a barrier like insecurity because I know if there's a place for me, if I know I'm chosen and made worthy, I don't have to be secure about my place in this community now. It removes individualism because I, I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to earn my place. I don't have to um, convince other people that I am worthwhile. I can take on a we perspective rather than a me perspective because my place is secure. It builds resilience. You know, oftentimes we can get a little bit knocked off course in real life community. But those things that knock us, we know aren't eternal. And this eternal perspective frees us to love others as they are because we have experienced a love that has looked past our own deficiencies. And so here's my close. I can strive to do what is good for the other people in my church Fano, and for everyone else because I know that I am covered. I don't have to strive to do what is good for me because anything good I can do for myself, God has already eclipsed with what he has done for me. And so I want to take, before we kick into some worship, I just want to take a minute. And I'm worried that like there's seven applications here and we could have done an entire sermon on all of them and some of them are like pretty scary or most of them are pretty scary. But I want us to think just before we kick into a next worship song, pick one of these things and then pick among that one thing, what's one starting place for you to start to practice one of these things in your life? Like what's the very first step for you in one of these seven things? Paul called us to always strive to do what is good for each other. He encouraged us to do these present choices that ground us in this future reality. But before we go, I want to read this verse, last, very last thing, because the ultimate model of, of giving of oneself is Jesus, right? Listen to this in Philippians. It's a classic verse, but I want you to listen to this very first thing that comes before it. It says this, In your relationships with one another... Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the ultimate model of giving of himself to others. But is there one thing on this list that you might want to start to practice, one starting point for you? a quiet moment of reflection before we get into some moment of worship.